iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the end of 2020 awards on the game podcast from the Times. It's going to be a fun one, I promise. We're going to look back on the, well, hardest year we've really seen uh, in sport in generations. We'll look forward with some hope and positivity to a happier 365 days to come. We'll also discuss the latest Premier League news, of course, as leaders Liverpool drop more points and postponed matches affect the festive football calendar. To help me boogie-woogie through it all uh, to celebrate the New Year's Eve, of course, as it is today. Uh, from the Times, Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark. How are you doing? Very, very well. Very well, Hugh. Got out the kitchen, done the ironing, done the washing up. And now I can, I feel able to talk about football. <laughs> I'm, with, I'm with Alison. I'm, I'm more excited. I've had two coffees and I'm pumped for it. I'm mad for it. I can, as Wet Wet said, Wet 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 said, I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. This is going to be a great game podcast. I can feel it. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. Um, this, this is pretty much our own version of what a lot of people are going to do today, which is basically popping champagne over Zoom while doing a quiz of 2020. So um, hopefully people will get warmed up by listening to this for what they're going to do with their friends a little bit later on. It's been a strange year for everyone. But any personal milestones, any personal discoveries in 2020 for you three? Yeah, I discovered. I discovered. I can. I. You can still at my age, whatever age that is. Uh, you can get better at sport. So I, my tennis is improving, and that's a lovely thing to know that I'm not going downhill at something. I'm actually getting better, especially on the backhand. Very good. I look forward to that continuing to progress to a Wimbledon appearance, Alison. <laughs> Wildcard in 2021. Uh, my only achievement uh, in a year in which lots of my friends have been getting engaged and having kids is that I've not had a haircut since March. And so um, I can now put my hair in a kind of top knot and look a little bit like I could be, you know, one of the backup players in Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds team. So that's, that's my only achievement. And I, who knows where it ends as well. It's got long, it's got, you know, longevity, if you excuse the pun, um, to go into the new year. Who knows? Maybe I'll do a sponsored shave. Maybe we could organise that. That is true. Anyone listening, if you want to sort of advertise your barbershop, if you can deal with his long mane, we'd all love you to. So um, it's got <laughs> to that point. So please do get in touch. Uh, Gregor, what about you? Yeah, I'm probably one of Tom's. Are we friends, Tom? You're probably friends. Uh, <laughs> wow. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> That is, that is the truth. It has to be. It has to be that. I said it last week, but the fact that I'm going to be a dad in 2021, is uh, that's my achievement of 2020, undoubtedly. 
Well done. We've we'll been in the get... house the rest of the time as well. Yeah, I was in the house for that as well. Probably too much detail. Let's move on, move on. Very good. Uh, we won't go into details into what kind of achievement that was either. Uh, but thank you very much, Gregor. And of course, uh, best of luck with the impending delivery. But lots for us to get through. Come on, Jim. Um, wait, hang on, hang on. You can't just gloss over it. You must have a personal achievement of your own. Don't say becoming host of the game podcast because that's way too cheesy. That, that, well, there's not much then in that case. Um, <laughs> I've done pretty much the same thing from the start of the year. Um, in, in fact, really, my only personal discovery is that I managed to stay very positive throughout the entire year. And I know other people aren't in that position, but um, in many ways, I was inspired to do that by my partner in the fact that, that she's not very positive at all about anything and so basically every single day i had to wake up and be the smiley happy one and that's just sort of changed my personality now every morning i wake up with a spring in my step so that is my personal discovery for 2020 thank you darling for inspiring that fantastic that gives that gives, that gives hope for miserable buggers all over the land <laughs> you know, there is a reason for being that grumpy i love it that's great Exactly. Associate yourselves with people more positive and, and you can just be the yin and the yang. Um, but listen, let's talk football. Um, it's been a year of not too many changes, I think, for Liverpool because they started the year top. They end the year top. But the last two results of the year aren't exactly what they were hoping for. They followed up their draw with West Brom with a goalless draw at Newcastle. They've now dropped points this season against those two sides, Fulham and Brighton as well. And... It's a big if, but if Manchester United beat Aston Villa 9-0 tomorrow, they will go top. It could happen, guys. Fingers crossed, United. Um, Alison, I'll start with you. Uh, <laughs> why do you think Liverpool were a little bit lacklustre? Because I, th I think they were. Uh, because they're not given special powers because they're the champions. They're just like any other team. And I think most teams are having spurts. Spurts is the opposite word, really. But they're, they're looking tired, Um a lot more than you would expect at this stage of the season. Also, they're suffering from we are the champion syndrome, which was ignored because of COVID and Project Restart and everything being very different. But actually, what's happening is um, people are thinking, right, they're Liverpool, they're pretty good. We're, let's just try and concentrate, keep it tight. If we're very lucky, we'll get something on the break, but that's not our priority. Let's frustrate them. And then the more teams do that, the more next teams will do that. So I think you're seeing teams play out of their skin when they face Liverpool. I haven't seen uh, a Newcastle performance quite like that one. I've seen Newcastle play well in, and in an attacking sense. I haven't seen Newcastle play that well. Defensively, stoically, well-organised, with a clear plan just to frustrate and... Uh, copy the West Brom playbook, if you like. So th that's what's happening. It's as though people are slowly waking up to the fact you, whether you, whether you ought to or not, it's diff a different question, but they are thinking Liverpool are the champions are the best team in the country. We just have to pull something special out of the bag. And I don't think Liverpool have quite the energy for lots of reasons, but one of them is that they do have a fairly big injury list to, um, to, to sort of battle their way through that. And they look at Crystal Palace, who didn't, didn't do that, played quite openly and then allowed Liverpool to have fun, which is another reason why that won't happen again, because everyone's thinking, whoa, let's just keep it tight. But Liverpool did start last season finishing in second place in the Premier League and as European champion. So there was a pretty fair indication that they were a decent side last term. They still ran away with it. 
do you see a, a, a different team, a different squad, a different mentality at all? Is it all to do with injuries, for example? We've not had this formula before, Hugh, have we? Where you you are you've you've managed to win the league, and you're not you're not a surprise winner of the league like Leicester, but you're you're sort of it feels historic because it's been thirty years, and Liverpool was supposed to have done it sooner than they had. That has an emotional impact on them. And they know they know they're entering a new phase of existence, if you like, where they'd like to establish a dynasty. They don't want it to be a flash in the pan and then hand it back to Manchester City. I mean, it I I feel they've got to get their vibe right. And the the plan they had for the season was ripped up when Van Dyke was injured. And I they've done really well in, in juggling resources. And then you have something like Jota proving to be an absolutely amazing signing, but then then he gets injured. It's it's like stutter, 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 regroup, regroup. Uh, there's been about you know thirteen different centre back partnerships. I mean, it's it's a different set of problem solving for Klopp to do, whilst trying to emanate a sense of um, being the elite, um, majestic, the one to beat. So, so I think the formula is different. I don't I mean, there's not, it's not, I'm talking fairly marginal stuff here. It's essentially the same, the same uh, philosophy, same Klopp, same front three, and so on. But I do, I do think all those little obstacles create create differences. I think, I think that's. I don't. It's a, I don't. Think it's a big problem. I still think Liverpool will win the league. I just think it'll be really close. Gregor, do you uh, feel the same? Do you think players are starting to fatigue? I think we saw that fairly early on, really, in the season. I think we saw the kind of, I agree with Alison, all these little sort of marginal things are all adding up to a very peculiar season. But there's no getting away from the fact that Liverpool have been without Alison for a big chunk, without Van Dijk for a big chunk, without other recognised centre halves uh, for most of the season. Um, so, And they're still top of the league. So if you look at, Look at the, the distance that they won the league by last season with a fully fit team and very very few of these things in the front three all firing pretty much. Um all those things have you know, they've lost a few key players. Some have some have dipped a little bit. I feel like I feel like some players have just are just not quite playing at the same level that they that they were last season over the last two seasons. And as Alison pointed out, there's sort of lots of reasons for that 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 can be said about every team really in the league. It's just no, it's just bizarre that we've got such a tight Premier League. It's never like this. Um, and there's nothing else you can put it down to. And I think Liverpool come into that as well. This is Liverpool below par. Oh, they're still top of the league. And, you know, I, I think that's really it. I think you've got to look at the injuries and the, the sort of unusual season. Uh, Tom, one thing that's going to be slightly concerning for Jurgen Klopp is four wins in their last 14 away Premier League games. Um, is it the weird season? Is it the injuries? Are, are Liverpool just worse? Or is it this champions syndrome? I, I think it's probably a combination of all of those things. I think the weird season is a massive factor. And I'm stressing the weird season because of the team who are in second place. Because... I mean, this is maybe another reason why I'm so excited about this podcast, because if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wins the Premier League title, I'm not going to be on much longer, because I, I, I mean, it's not a great look for me, is it, given my predictions early on in the season. I think you need to look at the table as a whole to then maybe understand 
Liverpool's situation. They are still, for me, by far and away the best team. They are stuttering and struggling. And that is reflected in the fact that a not great Manchester United team are only three points behind them with a game in hand in second place. Fair play to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and the lads. You know, I, I'm, I'm good on them. You know, if they manage to win the league, I, I, I genuinely will be absolutely astounded. But I do think that, that the overall feel of the season is is one of you know it's going to be we're going to stutter our way through to the end but as as we've said recently that's going to make for great viewing for neutrals and great fun for all of us as long as it all keeps going but i think there is also a tiredness factor coming in as well i was looking at some of the statistics um this morning for kind of overall game weeks and yes we had some cancellations but this latest game week was by far the lowest not just for goals obviously but also for chances created, total shots, balls into the box, touches in an opposition penalty area. Uh, so overall, there's a bit. Of, I do think there's a bit of a tiredness coming into things, and that's why we had a few nil nils. And you know, I was watching a lot of the games, and to be fair, Liverpool Newcastle was a bit gung ho at times in comparison to some of the other games, Man United Wolves, which was pretty pedestrian. Um, so I, I don't think it's as much. It's as much about the uh, league overall, I think, as it is about anything specific to do with Liverpool. You mentioned Manchester United there, um, Gregor. Are they genuine title contenders, or do you think they're just the latest side alongside Villa in the past, Chelsea earlier this season, Spurs as well, to just go on a decent run? Yeah, the latter. I'm sorry, you. I think. Um, Don't apologize. <laughs> it saves pretty much my career, Tom's, and, and dozens of people in the media industry yeah, yeah, if sure. Manchester United falter at some point. I mean, there, there's no, nothing to say that they won't be the closest challenger to Liverpool, but I think Liverpool, you know, win, win the league. And I don't think, although it's not going to be by such a, a kind of chasm this year, I still think it'll be fairly comfortable. And Manchester United are on this sort of upward curve that was spoken about before, and there will be a, a downward moment. Um, and I think you know. Even you look at Aston Villa. Aston Villa have got two games in hand over over Liverpool, and they're and they're seven points behind them. It's like there's. It's very peculiar this season. It's very hard to. It's very hard to kind of to judge where teams are going to end up. I think and Manchester United will be in the top four. They may be. They may finish second. They may be Liverpool's closest challengers, but I don't think it's going to be close enough for them to, to be a genuine title challenge. I mean, Man, Man City as well. They, they're the team that I keep thinking, surely Man City are going to come, aren't they? They've got, they've got to. They've also got two games in hand, the same as Villa. Uh, and who? I think, who are they? Who, sorry? Who? Manchester who? What? Who? Forgotten uh, about them completely. Isn't that hilarious that we have all forgotten about them completely? I have not forgotten about them, Alison. And you've only won one title. You know, they were they, <laughs> They did win a couple before that, so let's let's give them their due. And you know, if they if they if they win their two games, then they're up right near the top with Liverpool as well. So I, I mean, I've got some kind of blind faith in Pep Guardiola. He's got to be looking at this season and thinking, how the hell am I not up there yet with Liverpool? So I I have some some kind of weird faith, which is based purely on my idea that I've slagged off Ole Gunnar Solskjaer so much that I need someone like Pep Guardiola to come up and. Knock, knock, knock Ollie down into fifth place so that I can smugly say, ha, told you so uh, in May. But um, yeah, I, th- I think there's lots of twists and turns to come yet. And it will ultimately end with Liverpool winning the league. <laughs> uh, lots of twists and turns, as you say. Uh, seven points separating the top nine teams in the Premier League at the moment. But if we're going to have a title run in, 
we're going to need the league to continue and we're going to need all the games to take place. Sadly, we're facing the tsunami of a new coronavirus variant in the UK. It's led to outbreaks at two Premier League clubs this week. Manchester City's game with Everton was postponed. Uh, Fulham had an outbreak too. Uh, that led to their match at Spurs being postponed just a few hours before kickoff as well. Managers reacted. Uh, David Moyes was asking why West Ham... Um, didn't have a match postponed earlier in the season when he and two of his players tested positive for COVID. Chris Wilder, Sheffield United, still played their match at Burnley this week after two positive tests in their squad. And before we even get to whether football should continue as a whole, I think, Alison, we need to ask why there isn't a more transparent threshold, if you want to call it that, for matches being postponed that we all in the media, football fans and the public generally are aware of. Well, you've, you've, you've put the answer in your question, Hugh. It's the new variant and how um, contagious it is. And if you've got... What happened at Fulham was they got um, some results back, but not all. And they had some, which, inclu- which they had some positive tests. So that implied there would be more, but they weren't sure how many. And then you think, well, you know, you... What are you supposed to do if, if, it's, if it's running rife at a club and you let them mingle at another club? Why would you allow that? And the medical advice is we don't allow that. If, you've got, if, if, if it's spreading quickly, then you can't play the game. Whereas before, they, the, the Premier League clubs were able to contain it because they were, everything was just a bit slower. And just by isolating and maintaining your bubbles and having regular testing, you could track it far more easily. They have, at the moment, they're not capable of working out projections of what it might mean. I don't think they can know. And that is why I think more, the other fly in the ointment here is the politics of it. So Fulham did not want to say they were in trouble because that's no way to prepare for an important game, is it? To let the opposition know you might have some selection issues. There might be some key personnel who've tested positive. So they were very keen to play it down, really, initially, and for it to be a possibility that the game was going ahead because they they don't... It's, it's, it's cat and mouse about how you, as the club, with the outbreak, handle it. It's, and so the opposition managers are all getting very cross. Jose Mourinho, the most recent on Instagram, getting angry because he's got a group of players sitting around knitting and watching Sky Sports, not knowing if they're going to play a game or not. But I, that's the, that's the that transparency from the club that has the outbreak is going to be, maybe that's where the Premier League need to step in and, and just take away the politics from the club that has it. Because I can see why, I can see both sides. I can see why the club who doesn't have the outbreak is left waiting. And the club that does have the outbreak is thinking, we don't want to come across as 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 in a bad situation here, this this hands this hands psychological advantage to our opponents, and also they're juggling. Can we really put out a good team or not? I mean, you know, you can any big club can put out fourteen players, but they might be the <laughs> might be fourteen really rubbish ones, and they don't want to do that. Uh, there's a part of me that thinks that these players are in the squad. I mean, you've got twenty five man squad if you like and you're, you've also got the possibility of playing people outside of that group if they've got senior experience and you can only use 14 players so if you've got 14 players maybe you, I think maybe a, a substitute goalkeeper is important as well um, th- then games should go ahead because <sighs> w- 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 at what point do you say 
you know, we're not going to carry on or games are going to be called off when a club has an outbreak. If players are testing negative for coronavirus and they're free to play, then shouldn't the game go ahead? If it's running wildfire, a negative test is almost meaningless if you've been with someone who's had a positive test because the test would have been 48 hours earlier. You've probably, if it's, if it's, if it's very contagious, you've probably then got it and you're not actually free of it. But this, but with with but, you know, on there's the other factor, isn't there, in football, in that you know these these games have a huge huge impact further down the line. They probably will do. You know, Hugh, you're a Man United fan, and I know you're very disparaging about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, but you are in a title race now, and you've got a couple of massive games coming up in January, presumably when this variant is going to be spreading all over the country. So all of a sudden, Bruno Fernandez and Marcus Rashford test positive. And, you know, maybe there's going to be a temptation to be thinking, OK, well, let's hit the threshold of let's try, you know, go and... But this, go is, and, but this, is, but this is my point, Tom. Go and if, cough on if, Marcus Rojo's face and then make sure he's... <laughs> you know, let, let's, get, let's, let's get the count up to six and we can get this game called off because we're never going to beat, we're never going to beat uh, any of these teams without Fernandez. This is my point. If the Premier League say openly, if a club has five positive tests, their game's immediately called off and that's the first set of tests... 48 hours before I, I, I still think they need to bring in sort of rapid testing on the day of games. And I, I'm, I'm one of those that thinks a late cancellation of a game is, is probably better than canceling early for no reason. So I'd rather see them have test results that come back on the day of a game and, and have the possibility of everyone testing negative and the game going ahead. Um, because I just think if they if they want all the matches to continue, they need to get the testing a little bit better and probably bring in more tests closer to kickoff, which people might disagree with. But ultimately, there are no fans going to games at the moment. There are only players, coaches and the media, pretty much. And yes, it's an inconvenience for us, but it's not 60,000 people. More tests generally is the is the answer, I think, particularly now. You know, it was reduced only had to be once a week. It clearly has to be two, two a week now. Um but it's also interesting when you look further down the pyramid in that I think in the championship there's been four games off, uh, League 1, 29, and there's League 2, a whole, 11. whole league week two, yeah. out in League 1 in the and week. League 2, 11. But there's the reason for that. You think, why would League 2 be, be lower than, than League 1? Because they can't afford to test. And so... You don't have to. In the EFL, it's only if you display symptoms. And, you know, the people of this demographic aren't going to, likely aren't going to display symptoms. So in League One, they're, they maybe have a bit, bit more extra money and that they can do it if they have to. Whereas in League Two, probably they're incentivized not to. So I think really testing has to be, now that this, you know, we're ex- experiencing a third wave and it's looking even more kind of contagious and whatnot, um, testing more broadly. And that also next week, Premier League clubs play in the FA Cup and the FA are funding tests for lower league, for the lower league clubs, for the non-Premier League clubs. I think really you need to find the money for that all the time. It feels a bit like you're coming up against the big guys. Uh, we better make sure that you're not contagious. So, like te- yeah, testing is the... needs to be more testing. But personally, you know, a lot of this has been weaponized. I think, recently by fans about, you know, why was this game cancelled and whatnot. I, I kind of agree with Alison. I think if there's any... You can't know it's rife, but there's a, if there's a fear that it's it's rife or it's spreading quickly through a through a team through a training ground, take the safe option. But do we do you think we need to know, Gregor, what that point is when it's reached? Whether that's three positive tests, four, five, six. 
Well, no, say say there's been three or four positive tests, but those three, three or four, or players four. Are, well, well, no, no, say it doesn't matter. Say there's been two, and but those two players have spent a considerable amount of time with the rest of the team in a in a in a dressing room or in an area where you know it's likely to spread. That's a threshold. Personally, this is things have changed a little bit too. So it's also it depends the proximity to the game. As you say, if it's forty hours before and there's more, t- there's more time to kind of to make these calculations. It's just it's a look. It's an un, <laughs> it's a new situation for everyone. But I think safety has to come first. Really, would you would you see the Premier League go back to the the training rules it had at the start of Project Restart, where players were in separate groups, they weren't coming to the training ground at the same time, just so we can see exactly how this new variant is going to affect football? Until we do, do we need to be a little bit more measured about the contact time that players have together? drive to games on their own for example I mean possibly I think we need to see how the next week of, week kind of unfolds and if there are many many more tests then probably that is what has to happen and we know we're going to talk about whether actually has to halt completely and as we've, as it's been pointed out it has to be if that happens there's no point in the players training at all they have to go back to what they did uh, during lockdown which was train alone and you know that feels like a big backward step but um yeah, I, th- I think we just need to see how the next week unfolds. And if there are many, many more tests, then that has to be on the table, definitely. But this is, isn't there a problem with... There's two two issues as a player, isn't there? And this is obviously more a question for you, Gregor, in terms of it, the season is probably going to have to be finished before the summer because of the way this uh, the narrative around this virus is that, you know, everything will be fine and we'll all be, you know, enjoying life again by the summer, ho-ho. But... You know, there's going to be Champions League semi-finals, finals, the Euros. We're not going to be able to drag it out again. So you're going to have to finish by a certain point. So that then might, A, put an even greater strain on an already busy calendar. Is that not also a factor in in this decision in terms of further down the line? Okay, you either play with a restricted squad now and then maybe be able to fit in the games in a more orderly manner or you're playing three games in a week and people are getting injured anyway. Absolutely, so there's no there's no good scenario there. <laughs> but I think if you're a player as well, and um, you're possibly jeopardising, we're coming back to the same arguments that we had in the summer about players possibly mixing together and bringing it home to possibly bringing bringing this illness home. Um, you know, if if the risk becomes too great, then I think that some steps have to be taken to you know to improve the situation. Alison, the fixture schedule is getting silly, as Tom points out, a little bit later on in the season. Do you think these postponements should be forfeitures already? Oh, well, my, my, my gut reaction is no. That's so counterintuitive because you just know the pools panel will get involved and that means we won't get any of the surprises we've, we've had. I mean, you know, Fulham might well have beaten Spurs, but there's no way the pools panel are going to say that, is it? So... Uh, I mean, it might, it might, it might, it might be sensible, but I, it it feels counterintuitive with football having having tried so hard to get it right. I mean, it's, this isn't football's fault, is it? I mean, if you let the schools go back, then most players have kids, and so they're coming back. This this is different from the summer lockdown when everything was shut. Now, the players' families are doing stuff. Their kids are going into education, and they're coming back probably even though the Russians say they can't, they probably are coming back with the virus and, you know, their lives are different. The footballers' lives are different this time around and 
they are more likely to pick something up. But we're heading towards um, vaccination. I don't know the ethics of maybe footballers getting the vaccination if they donate a lot of money to somebody. I mean, it sounds, it sounds wrong that they should jump the queue, but if they're going to buy in from a different source, perhaps, so they don't deplete NHS sources, just the same way we had the argument over, oh, it's not right that players get tested before average people in the population, but they paid for it and they did promise they would not deplete access to NHS staff and so on. Maybe there's a way around it. So I would, I would, I would hope not, because of all this effort, all this effort to make football real. I mean, people only buy into the beauty and excitement of football because it's real. And if you start saying, "Oh, that game, we're going to make up the score so we can have an outcome at the end of the season," it just seems like, well, what was the point? Because we, we, you know, what was the point if you're going to make it up? I'd, ra- I'd rather it wasn't a forfeiture. Yes. There's got to be another way. The, the, you know, one of the things we've missed is the kind of fan interaction and the. all the fun that comes with having supporters in stadiums. And I think there's an easy solution to this. Nominate, in the same way you have cricket and a super over or whatever, or bowl at the stumps, nominate a player or coach crossbar challenge. Easy. Easy. The game's off. Whack them in the... I'd love to see that. It'd be great if it was the managers, wouldn't it? I, it, it It would not surprise me on the Wednesday night before the final game of the season if five players from seven or eight clubs, whatever it is, show up at a stadium to do penalty shootouts, you know, That'd at two o'clock in the afternoon I'm, I'm to, to, to decide games, which would be incredible TV, to be perfectly honest. Six kick, five or six kicks to decide um, to decide a fixture, but there you go. Well, kind of left the, the elephant in the room as well, which is that, once again, money, broadcasters, that's the thing. They're, you know, you start that would get a lot of viewers. All in the season, you're talking about giving money back again and there's no chance, well, there's any way of avoiding that. They're, they're not going to. This is the thing, Gregor. There are three currently three placeholders for postponed games to be replayed in, you know, p- places, let's say, empty midweeks where games could be played. If Spurs, take them as an example after their game against Fulham was called off, if Spurs go far in the Europa League, if they reach the FA Cup and League Cup finals, unlikely, but still they could, there will be nowhere for them to play two of their games before the season ends. So how does the FA resolve that, Gregor? <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's no answer to that question. They're going to be playing. It's like, it has to be like earlier in the season when they played basically two different teams in Europe. And, and was that in the cup as well? I can't remember, but they played two games ridiculously close together. Europa and League qualifier and a EFL Cup game against Leighton Orient. That, yeah. that was called off, thankfully, for Spurs and Jose Mourinho. Yeah. That, you know, that's the only answer, surely. There's no... There's no alternative. It's the. It's just. I mean, if it comes to it, you're going you're to be playing three or four games in a week. That's the truth of the matter because there's no alternative this year. You know, last season it went, it rolled over. When you have something like Euros blocking your kind of <laughs> your, I don't know, the little window of opportunity possibly at the end, then um, they they would have to do it. But it would, that would be that would be some spectacle. Four games in a week, players crawling around on the pitch <laughs> what's the most games you've played in a week come on you must have done a double header Saturday Sunday <laughs> um, I think well I did all the time when you were a kid but not in professional yeah, football not. I'm joking I mean, of probably, course probably three three yeah uh, I once actually played a reserve game and then I was on the bench the next the next day for, for Forest which I thought was pretty unprofessional and then I had to come on 
Oh, <laughs> the kind of the manager was like, I think he was slightly apologetic afterwards. Um, so, you know, I didn't think I was going to have to use you, but backfired, mate. <laughs> how was that? Were you absolutely gassed, or were you all right because you were a young, fit thing? Yeah, I was young. Yeah, I was all right, but it's not ideal, is it? Going to have to be some sort of solution to that, especially. Uh, if, as the Spurs fans might believe, they're going to cup finals um, this season. Um, football is going to continue. The Premier League have put out a statement saying, rather strangely, in my opinion, I've got to be honest, that it has not discussed pausing the season and has no plans to do so, which I sort of questioned why they didn't just say, we're, we're constantly reviewing the situation, it's ever-changing. Um, we, we have no plans to stop, but we'll review that at a later date. Alison, why, why so strong on this? Uh, possibly because as Gregor says they don't want to annoy the broadcasters they want a sense of business as usual we are going to fulfil our obligations and they they like the rest of the country can probably see light at the end of the tunnel now they they know that vaccines are being shipped out this is I mean they might be slightly head in the sand about it but they see this this current situation um, where there's you know quick uh, quick spreading of, of, of a new variant as, as as a blip something that's not not going to be the norm from now on so but I agree with you it, it whilst they probably think they sound authoritative and confident and making the people who pay the money feel the same things it does make <laughs> it does make them sound like they're just deniers like they they're almost being covid deniers because we if we've learned anything it's that there's, there's, a, there's a surprise around the corner and we don't know exactly what we're dealing with. I, I, what I think has happened is they, they think those words sound one way and actually when you read them out loud, they sound quite different. Tom, do you think football should be carrying on at this point? I mean, I'm going to say yes, purely because as we're going to talk about later, football, let's be honest, has been one of the few bright things in this year and I think it plays such an important role. You know, if you think about people that maybe live on their own and are going to be stuck in tier four restrictions, having the football to watch and get engaged with and something to chat with your mates about rather than, oh, the queue outside Morrison's was massive today. You should have seen it. Um, you know, which, which by the way is my dad's regular source of conversation. So, uh, if we haven't got Lincoln to talk about, it's going to be a real struggle, but it's, it's, it is very difficult, but it's something we've talked about a lot before. And I am conscious of as well, players further down the pyramid. If you've got your, you know, a player in his late twenties, got a couple of young kids going to school, he's going to training, he's playing in games. I mean, that's rife for spreading of uh, a highly contagious, contagious virus. So it's very difficult for them, but then, those clubs need the money. They need the money from Quest and all these TV companies further down the pyramid more than any other. Um, that's another thing that we've got to be wary of as well. We had lots of conversations about football clubs under threat further down the pyramid. That will come back onto the table again, as much as there was a great rescue package and all that. Again, as we've talked about, a lot of these clubs were budgeting for fans back in October. Didn't happen. December didn't happen. Now this discussion's around tier four and tier eight till April. That's basically the whole season. And there will be lots of clubs in the country who will have played an entire season without any support or revenue at all. So I, I would say it's got to continue uh, just uh, for all those reasons, whilst being very mindful of uh, how serious, serious it is to say that. I think given your point, I should maybe amend my question for Alison then. It's, it's should football as it currently is continue? <laughs> what do you mean? 
That sounds very existential. If we no, no, no. As in, as in, Gregor has mentioned already, we need to ramp up the testing. So do we need the FA to come in and give clubs, particularly in the lower league, the money to increase testing so that football can continue? But in its current mould, without testing, I'm assuming you'd say it shouldn't. Well, it can't. I don't see how it can. They, 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 well, they have, testing has increased and it needs more. You need to, you need to keep, at least keep, keep level with the virus in terms of improving testing and getting more done. And, and, and clubs are, they are being tested, players are being tested more often. But if you're asking me, should right now football have what they're calling a circuit break, uh, no, that makes no logical sense to me at all because it can't be. There's no such thing as a circuit break where you then uh, stop for two weeks or three weeks and then get going again because none of the players will have be ready to play, and then you risk more injuries, more of the pro- more of the problems we've already had. And what you're saying to players, they have to stay in uh, travel lodges on their own and not see their families in order to make sure that uh, they don't add to the to, to, to the contagion so that I would say they're better off players are better off staying within the system of training and their clubs where they can be tested and you just you just you just try and keep pace with the virus you just you I don't see how stopping football now having a break it's not when, when the country talks of a circuit break that's about shutting down life isn't it shutting down schools and travel and so on but shutting down football does not act in the same way in fact i would say the reverse would be true they're more the players are more likely to suffer in terms of training is different or non-existent and you're just putting them in places where they're more likely to get to get the virus anyway so i would say just ramp up what we have keep it going keep confident gregor if you were still in the efl playing would you want to be out there at the moment continuing yeah, I think we've been on a kind of bit of a journey with this, obviously. And my early answer to that in March and 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 the rest, you know, those early months was kind of. I think I would have been slightly wary of all this. I remember writing a piece saying that you know you go out and you walk the streets now, and you kind of you have to plot the route in front of you, and you, you go for a morning run or whatever, and you you're trying to avoid people, and then suddenly you had to go boom and start playing a contact sport. I would have found that strange, but now the attitude is very different among players. I think to this. And you know they feel they don't feel threatened or endangered. Although there have been some stories, you know, at Newcastle, people have been affected quite badly by it. So I, I think we'd be happy to footballers would be happy to continue playing. Um, I think they would want tests though, because I think the fear is that they're in an environment that a lot of other people aren't in a workplace, and then going home and potentially you know, giving the virus to, to someone in your family. I think that would be the, the main thing. And I feel like if, you know, as, I, as I've said, if you're a player in the EFL just now, you're not getting tested. It's not mandatory. The likelihood is, unless your club's got the money to do so, you're not getting tested. So then it's kind of, you're on a wing and a prayer. But I do wonder with what, going back to a point you made, Gregor, with the age groups of, and you know, fit, healthy, young professional footballers, um, there's a there's a chance a lot of them have been playing asymptomatic for a while. Absolutely. And, uh, so there's, there's there is the factor of it's obviously great and safe to be saying more testing, but if you suddenly ramped up the testing, made it far more frequent, made it everyone, regardless of whether you had symptoms or not, you might end up with a thing of where you've got two lads who've got a bit of a scratchy throat who've got it, and then you've got another six who've also got it, 
and they're completely asymptomatic. And so then you might have to work out a way of changing the parameters for when you play, how many players you need to have fit. I, d- I don't know. I'm not, I've got no answers to that, but I'm saying I wouldn't be surprised, as you say, because testing is not as frequent further down the pyramid. If you increase it, you're going to see more, far more positive results at this time of year, particularly with the variant that's going around at the minute. So it's, it could be a double-edged sword, more testing, I, would, I do wonder. Uh, we will see how football reacts going forward and, and I guess how this new variant uh, treats the nation and, and the sport itself. But football isn't having a break uh, anytime soon. We are just momentarily here before we get to our organised fun on the game podcast, the end of 2020 awards and Bill Edgar's bodacious quiz of 2020. But if you enjoy the podcast, of course, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever provider you use. Make sure you're subscribed, though. You can get a digital time subscription uh, to the Times and Sunday Times. Enjoy all of it on all of your devices. Just sign up today and you will get yourself one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get yourself started. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Now, if you go onto your Times app at the moment, you can see Times photographer Mark Asplin pick out his pictures of the year so far. They're pretty remarkable. And they inspired us to take a look back through the lens of a pretty strange year in football with some positivity with our end of year awards for 2020. The best manager game, uh, signing, player and moment of the year to be decided by our panel here, Tom, Gregor and Ali, before we get to our quiz of the year, including Alison Rudd's Football Word Watch. Stay tuned to find out exactly what that is. Um, let's start with our awards, though, and I think we'll start with an easy one. Um, let's try and get to the bottom of who the best manager of 2020 was. Has anyone got a big shout to start? <laughs> there is only one answer. It's more interesting who comes second in that, isn't it? There is only one answer for me, yeah. Is this the big reveal? You're going to say Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, aren't you? This is the big turn. No, no, no. Southampton boss, Ralph Hardenhutl, who was in the virtually in the bottom three a year ago, uh, beaten 9-0 by Leicester. I think it was last October, but still struggling uh, as the year turned. And it's, it's a huge turnaround. It's a remarkable turnaround. I mean, there's a big shout for Dean Smith at Villa, you know, keeping his side up towards the end of the season and kicking on this year. They've been spectacular what do, you, what do you mean Alison there's only one answer who no, there's, one, there's one answer which is Jürgen and then there's lots and lots of lovely there's lots of lovely debate about who comes second and I agree I think Dean Smith and Ralph are, are definite candidates to be number two as is Scott Parker because I think he's often derided but he he, he got Fulham promoted everyone said oh my god God, they're going to go back down very quickly. And he completely ripped up the team. Nobody does that anymore. He completely, not because of injury, because he knew he had to. He's ripped up the team and he's got them actually looking defensively sound. I think that counts for a lot. It's Steve Clark. Let's get away from all this nonsense. This is going to no. be Scottish related every single award. <laughs> it could be, yeah. Um, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get, hated for this but I'd say you've got to throw Bielsa in there 
Absolutely. Don't be ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. Let me explain, right? What, which manager has had a bigger effect through his coaching on, on his players? Well, he did, he did Klopp that is the only one. Klopp is the only one. Klopp is, no, he continues to do it. And he got, the, he got Leeds promoted. It was almost as long as Liverpool hadn't won the league. Uh, his presence, his leadership. The other thing is, you watched the, the games were on the TV the other night and you look through the games. There was Brighton Arsenal, Burnley Sheffield United, Southampton West Ham. Even if Man United Wolves was on at the same time, I would have rather watched Leeds. Pick any of those games, any of those teams, I'd rather watch Leeds. But that's just an entertainment factor. It doesn't mean Absolutely. that he's a, he's a better manager. Let's, let's not get onto that again. Well, uh, well, you, you can talk about achievement. No, you can talk about achievements, and the achievement was in the latter half, in the first half of 2020, was getting Leeds into the Premier League. And now his achievement is that they're in halfway up the league, which is an achievement in itself, and they're playing brilliant football, and they're the, the team I would most enjoy watching after Liverpool, Alison. Well, there, there you go. You just said it. They're the team you'd most enjoy after Liverpool and Liverpool won the title. So I'd rather watch Leeds games than Liverpool. Personally, I'd rather Honestly, watch We just agreed that Klopp, I would agree with you, Klopp has to be, oh, you're has both to be wrong. the best manager. You're both wrong. Yes, he's to be the best manager in the country for a number of years. But we're having an interesting debate about who's close behind and I would say no one is closer behind than Marcelo. So, Marcelo uh, uh, but I just think you have to take other factors into account when it comes to things like manager of the year, which is the amount of money your players cost, the quality of them. Yes, he's what he wins in all of them. All of them. Yes, you. No, but, but all, all I'm saying is Marcelo Bielsa has a championship squad for me, pretty much. I mean, uh, there are very few standout players. So that maybe edges him in terms of, you know, his managerial skill, possibly in 2020 ahead of Jurgen Klopp, given he has fantastic world-class quality players. So there is there is a difference in terms of what they're working with. No, I mean, look, he's, he's ultimately saying that Bielsa should win there. I think that still Jurgen Klopp, without a doubt, is the best manager in the country. He's probably the best manager in the world uh, because all those things I said about coaching, leadership, presence, inspiration, you know, what he's done to a, a club and an institution. It's the same thing. There's many facets to being a manager. Coaching is the biggest one, but there's thing about presence and as I say leadership and he he does all those things for Liverpool I would just say I'm in a theme of you know it's end of the year we're having a party we've got the champers out so let's all get along I like all of you but you're all wrong now I would just say lots of listeners have um, got in touch and there's lots of shouts for Harson Hootle and Dean Smith so Hugh that packs you up um, I'm going to give a shout out to just briefly, Gregor, if you want to find a manager who's had a bigger influence on a group of players in 2020, you Ainsworth. only need to go and look at Michael Appleton's Lincoln. But Gareth Ainsworth is uh, is my nomination for manager of the year for getting Wickham promoted and for seemingly ending the year. I, th- I don't think they've got another fixture, but they picked up a massive win the other night, 2-1 against Cardiff, which just drags them back into the survival hopes at the bottom of the championship um, so he gets my nod with a little PS shout out for Sean Dyche just because the lad is never going to win any manager of the year award ever even though he should and Burnley have just been bought out by an American investment group who will probably suddenly start saying they want to play the ball out from the back and Burn, you know he'll get sacked in February and they'll be relegated by May and we'll never hear of poor old Sean Dyche again so a little PS for Sean Dyche but my nod goes to Gareth Ainsworth of Wickham 
It's a good a nod. Lovely, lovely. Very good nod. Yeah. Uh, Alison, we should say you, you, you did win. There is really only one answer, but we look, we, we just had to make a conversation out of it. I think uh, even I agree with FIFA on this one. Jurgen Klopp. Yeah. I mean, I just like to go on record that I do not agree with that. <laughs> well, I, okay. Okay. But I, I think he's a, he's, he's a level above, you know, when it comes to the top of the game, we'll see what he wins this year. If, if anything, you never know. Um, Let's move on to our signing of the year. I wanted to do that next. Um, many people will say there's only one answer on this as well. Um, Gregor, I'll start I'll start with you. Well, we signed uh, Lyndon Dykes on a free from Australia. I think that was probably saying it. <laughs> uh, now, of course, it's Fernandes. It has to be because, he's, you know, his impact has been spoken about so much. His impact has been, has been remarkable. Basically, every second goal Man United score, he's either set up or scored it. And you'd kind of hate to think where Man United would be without without Fernandez, to be to be quite honest. So um, there are lots. I, you know, I would give a doff of the cap to people like Calvert Lewin as well. I think his 2020 has been absolutely transformational. Just before 2020, though, he kind of started to score a few goals, and but he under Ancelotti has been has been remarkable so I'd, I'd throw him, to, him into the mix as well but it's got to be Fernandes Yeah I mean it's going to be difficult for Calvert-Lewin having signed a few years ago to be the signing of 2020 but <laughs> I thought we were on player sorry <laughs> Signing of the year Bruno Fernandes Tom what do you think signing of the year do you agree with Gregor Bruno All of our listeners universally Alex, Ben uh, lots of Bens actually all said and they all said Bruno Fernandes as well but um, I I, I I really try not to, and I know I actually shoehorned a mention of Lincoln in a minute ago, but this is a completely genuine, sincere nomination for a Lincoln player. Uh, and he's only been here for half of 2020. In the summer, we signed a guy called Lewis Monsmer, a 22-year-old Dutch centre-back from the Dutch second tier on a free transfer. This guy, I'm telling you now, if he's, it will at least be in the championship, whether with us or probably with another team, very, very soon. And I think has the potential to be a Premier League centre-back. He's good in the air he's quick he's good on the ball he occasionally goes on these amazing rampaging runs where he beats about three players and I'm watching behind my fingers going god no please don't oh my god that's amazing brilliant keep going uh, he scored he scored seven goals this season both from corners in the box and he's also got an absolute rocket of a right foot on him he scored a goal from about 40 yards the other day bang daisy cutter straight into the bottom corner signed him on a free transfer if he's still with us in a year's time I'll be absolutely amazed so from that point of view, in terms of what he's brought to us on the pitch and the fact that we'll probably make a seven-figure sum profit on him, he's my nomination for signing the season. And keep your keep your eyes peeled, Championship fans and fans lower down the Premier League, because lots of good lots of good signings in the EFL. To be to be frank, um, Ivan Tony up front for Brentford has hit the ground running. I mean, well, like a steam train, pretty honest. And um, we'll see if he continues. He might be a Premier League striker uh, by this time next year as well. Um, Ali, have you got a shout for signing of the the year? Oh well, I mean, I mean, I'd, I'd go further and say Bruno is is the most transformative signing since Virgil Van Dijk. He's absolutely incredible. The impact he's had, but I, I've also been impressed with. Just how quickly I'm impressed when players slot in quickly and look better than they did very quickly, which doesn't happen that very often. So that happened to Jota, who just, you know, couldn't stop scoring and looked really comfortable after about the first 15 minutes. That was impressive. And Ben Chilwell, 
I don't think I've seen someone fit in defensively so seamlessly for a long time. And he continues to be just a very, very elegant fullback and looks like he came through the Chelsea Academy. So that I, I like that about a new signing, the way they, because often they take a while to settle in. Those are two who just completely, were, must have been scouted so well, they just knew they would sort of dovetail beautifully. Uh, my shout for signing of 2020, uh, signed at the end of the January transfer window, Brighton's Tarek Lamptey at fullback, um, 19 years old. I don't even think he'd made a, a senior first team appearance for Chelsea, maybe one or two. Um, and he came in and just looked like he'd been playing Premier League football for years. And I'm sure he's got a bright, bright future ahead of him, already being talked about moving to some to massive clubs. But I mean, especially in a fullback position, I know you mentioned Ben Chilwell as well, but I mean, for a club like Brighton to sign a youngster who has just been so fantastic in every performance, um, totally out of the blue. Um, I think at that level, um, I, I, I barely think they paid a penny for him. It's a fantastic signing. So um, we'll see. But I think, can we agree on this one? Bruno Fernandes of Manchester United, the signing of 2020. Tom shakes his head again. I mean, uh, all, the, all the listeners said Bruno Fernandes, so I will, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a man of the people, so I'll go with them. But watch out for Lewis Montsma. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. <laughs> you watch. were the person that said we all needed to get along and start agreeing and you've disagreed oh, no, with I, everyone else so far. Uh, yeah, but I've done it in a charming way. That's, 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 you know, <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my shtick. I opened with by saying I love you all dearly, but you're wrong. So, you know, that's, that's fine. Thank you, thank you. Um, let's move on to our game of the year in 2020. Um, a lot of decent games, um, some not so much, especially given the, I think the change that we saw when fans weren't in grounds, um, there was a big difference. Um, Tom, what's your game of the season? Well, I, again, being a man of the people, I'm actually in agreement with lots of uh, our listeners. Although Justin shouts out Barcelona versus Bayern Munich for the way that Bayern just completely tore apart uh, a, a once great team. Uh, but like lots of our other listeners, I have got to go for Aston Villa 7, Liverpool 2. Uh, just because I was in the office that day. It was the same day that Manchester United had been thumped by Spurs and we're all thinking this is absolutely bonkers. And it was also a, a perfect day of football distracting us from the nightmarish uh, world that we're living in at the minute. And then along came Aston Villa. And bear in mind, this was a Liverpool side with the great Virgil van Dijk in it uh, and they, they were just fantastic and it was I, I remember one of the goals going in maybe the fifth goal and a lot of people in the office just started laughing it was it was it was it was beyond football as entertainment it was football as something completely otherworldly it was utterly bizarre uh, and brilliant and a perfect perfect distraction from all the other rubbish that's been going on so I've got I found going. that game rather boring oh what a surprise I'm I'm with the listener. I'm with the listener who who name checked um, Barca two by an eight, um, because it's that was good family entertainment actually, and it reminded me of sitting around the telly watching um, Brazil lose seven one to Germany when they were hosting the World Cup. Um, the, the games like that, you just end up just sort of gawping and laughing and thinking that anything could happen and. There's a, it's not just that it's a shock. It's also that you're seeing great players, you know, gel together and do wonderful things on the biggest stage. So I think that was definitely the game, the game in terms of also what it meant going forward as well um, of the year. Do you agree, Gregor? 
Uh, the, no, the game I enjoyed the, the most was a bit more left field. Mine was the the championship playoff semi-final second leg between Brentford and Swansea. I thought that was one of the most entertaining games I'd seen in, well, a long, long time. It was obviously Swansea had the lead from the first leg um, and Brentford just absolutely tore into them. I think, I also think, you know, we you could put Thomas Frank into the into that category at the top earlier. Somebody, Ben Mayhew did a, he's a kind of analyst on, on Twitter, did a, a league of all four leagues in 2020 and Brentford were, were fourth behind Man United, um, Liverpool and Man City They've, in terms of like points per game over the calendar year. Um, and, you know, I, was, I, th- I think it's a matter of time before Brentford come up, but that game was kind of a, sort of showcased everything that Brentford are at their very best. Um, so that was one of the, the games I enjoyed most. I've got to say, I went to that game and it was fantastic. And it was one of those undulating, you know, back and forth type contests where you just thought in the first half that Swansea were going to get absolutely destroyed. And then it just felt like Brentford dropped off a cliff in terms of their ability to to, to run almost and, and were clinging on at the end. But yeah, there were chances. Swansea could have nicked it right at the end as well. Yeah, fantastic game. But actually, I thought, I actually thought the game of the year was quite obvious and I didn't think it was going to be um, that game with Aston Villa, but it does involve Liverpool and it's Liverpool 2, Atletico Madrid 3 in the Champions League, which was pretty much the final game before um, lockdown. Um but it was fantastic, wasn't it? I mean, it was it was four goals in extra time. It was it had everything. It had Simeone running up the touchline. It had passion, Morata scoring, collector's items. And it was just, yeah, it also saw the defending champions knocked out of the Champions League, of course, which made it, you know, even bigger. And it had fans, you know, and I was watching the highlights back this morning and it did, it was just one of those compelling fixtures. But it, um, I think it, it had just about everything. And I thought that was, I really thought that was the game of the year in terms of quality, close game, you know, the goals, things swinging back and forth and the meaning of the fixture as well. So yeah, I thought that was going to be the standout one, but I'm surprised. Yeah. I mean, it was remarkable. The, um, the Villa game, the seven, two, both things, um, both games with something in common, of course, Adrian in goal. And I think he has to get a special mention in terms of the games of the year, because without him, we wouldn't have had these fantastic moments. Absolutely. And I'm sure Alisson probably would have yeah, kept Adrian. a clean sheet. Exactly. And it would have been two nil to uh, to Liverpool on the day, but there you go. Um, yeah, the motto, the motto is no Alisson, no fun. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Very good, very good. Let's move on to our moment of the year next. Um, I'm going to, I'll start with this one because I'm sure people will be surprised, but I do think the moment of the year was Liverpool winning the Premier League title. Um, And I I don't know if that can be surpassed Um, because of the length of time it had taken Liverpool to win um, an English league title because of the style in which they did it, because of the the team that they have. I'm always a big fan. I think people that listen will get this over over time of footballing projects. Um, something that, that pretty much, I say, starts from the ground up. But you know what I mean? It was very much a root and branch change when Jurgen Klopp arrived. So to see the fruition and that goal, which really the Champions League for a club like Liverpool, I know it sounds crazy, but... Um, it didn't mean the same as winning the league title because they've they've managed to win the European Cup since they've won the league title. They've been to finals and lost. It was, you know, European competition has never really dropped off for them. 
But in terms of the English league title, it has in a big way because it, it was theirs, frankly. Um, so I'm not going to say I'm delighted to see that, them get it back. But in, in many ways, as, as a fan of football, to see their project, the style of football, the signings, the recruitment, everything come together in the way that it did. And for the fans to finally get the trophy that they've waited so long for, which I think it's unbeatably really the moment of the year, but maybe you'll prove me wrong. Uh, Tom, you shook your head immediately when I said that. So I'm looking forward to your response. I mean, I just, I, I grew up in Salford. I can't pick Liverpool for any answer. I'm sorry. Um, but lots of, uh, Listeners saying the first games back after COVID, football returning, was their moment of the year. Uh, Alex says the first round of games with the players taking the knee, being a very powerful moment with football. Uh, Ben suggests Messi almost leaving Barcelona and the excitement and the circus around that. Um, My my nomination uh, uh, comes from the Women's Super League and uh, Arsenal defender Jen Beattie. Uh, who we now know uh, in the last few weeks this year was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. But in a game in October against Brighton, she played and only three days before had learnt of her diagnosis. Uh, and she scored in a 5-0 win. And after she scored, all of her team went, teammates went absolutely bananas. And the celebrations, if you watch them back, I watched them back this morning and I've not had much sleep, but they did make me a bit teary um, because... It's just such a lovely moment of team a team being more than a football team. It's a team being companions and friends. And it's actually making me a bit emotional now thinking about it. It was just a brilliant moment and absolutely fair play to her. She's played on. She's actually scored a few more goals since. But that, that moment uh, with all her teammates running around her and the few tears and the fact that no one else knew about it, it was just in the team at that, at that time, was a lovely, powerful moment in football for me. Alison, your moment of the year? I think I think I've been very literal with this because I think the achievement of the year was Liverpool winning the league, no doubt about it. But I've gone to the actual moment, i.e., one second, which was the taking of the knee with the, at the Villa Sheffield United game, and the, the moment is when Rob Hawthorne gasps because he doesn't know it's going to come, and everyone watching doesn't know it's going to come. The referee was Michael Oliver. He was only told 15, 15 minutes before kickoff that this is what both teams had decided to do. Uh, Tyrone Mings had gone to Christian Perslow at Villa and said, what can we do to show our solidarity? And it, this was hatched very, very quickly. And they didn't want to um, detract from the tributes to the NHS. So they, they thought, well, well, we'll have to take the after the whistle has blown for kickoff. And then, before but before a ball is kicked, and it meant that nobody knew what was, no one quite knew what was happening, except that it was a, a lovely uh, cam- bit of camaraderie. Um, and, and this, what I'm saying, has nothing to do with Black Lives Matter and whether that was the right or wrong slogan. This is about this is about football doing something very unusual, trying to trying to show feeling in the right. I think the right way to do it. Um, and they managed to create a moment that, that you know, in a, in a world which is sort of highly choreographed and there's so much money involved, there are very few, you know, room for manoeuvre, surprises, that they, they did that. To pull that off, I thought, was that, that moment when Rob Hawthorne uh, 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 gasped, that was, that was the moment of the year because nobody other than the people involved on, at, in that stadium knew it was going to happen. Gregor? You don't need to ask me, do you? You don't need to ask me. 
I mean, yeah, as touching, as touching as those, as touching as those moments were, uh, mine's entirely selfish. Uh, <laughs> just the sheer joy I experienced when Davy Marshall saved that penalty, and he's look. That was also an iconic moment when he looked and he was there was the pause, and he was looking at the referee to get the the confirmation that he hadn't stepped off his line. And then everyone could start singing No Scotland, No Party. Um, no, seriously, 25 years since I've been so happy watching a moment in football. And you know, there's been a couple of moments when I played football that I've felt that kind of elation, uh, like winning promotion or yeah, playing at Wembley, that kind of thing. But for, for, from a fan's perspective, um, not for 25 years have I felt that kind of happiness from from one moment uh, watching one moment on a football pitch. So absolutely, big Davy Marshall. And, and gl- I'm glad to hear a proud Scotsman recognise that Wembley is the home of football as well. So Gregor, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> let's move on to our player of 2020 next. Um, but yeah, some lovely moments there, touching stories as well. Um, player of the year, Gregor, I'll start with you. It isn't, it really isn't. I feel, well, yeah, Alison's probably going to go for Jordan Henderson, is she? Yes, she is. I feel a lot of people will, and I feel like I've, as the year has gone on, I've kind of, I've kind of, that, that, that his impression and sort of influence on me has grown in that he is always on the pitch. No matter when everyone around him's fallen, he's a leader, he's versatile. Um, and I don't think Liverpool would be the team they are without him, which sounds weird to say when there are so many more talented players around around them. Um, so I'd say for the achievement and, you know, that iconic moment left in the Premier League. And Gregor, you for, might want to check on your fiancé uh, just to make sure that, that, that nothing's gone on because I can hear a child crying in the background. So I, I just, wanted to, <laughs> just wanted to make sure that you, you, your noise-cancelling headphones hadn't uh, made you miss some, some big events in the next room. <laughs> <laughs> it's a while yet, don't worry. There's busy path outside my house here. <laughs> sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead, back yeah. to Jordan Henderson. Sorry. No, I think it, uh, I've said it already. I think just his influence. I feel there's more to if you're picking the best player and you know the most talented player, it's it's Kevin De Bruyne. But I think the most influential player, and there's you know this this whole argument came into play when we we're talking about the Player of the Year award, and I think it's the same. Uh, and a 2020 award, so Jordan Anderson for me. Well, um, I, I echo everything Gregor said without the, um, you know, the equivocation. I don't know why there's any need to be equivocal about it because not only not only did he captain Liverpool to the great achievement of 2020, um, since then he's he's been one of the most consistent players. I would say his passing, if anything, has got better. I mean, his vision has got better and he's so adaptable, so adaptable. I love that about him. Hasn't let up at all. You, I mean, we have talking about the fatigue. He does not look fatigued. I'm sure if he feels it, he's determined not to show it. Plus, I think the, the X factor, the thing that swings it in his favour is that he was the leader of the captains of Premier League footballers who put together the the the, the, the charity um, gathering for the for the NHS and making sure that football, having been criticised by the government, actually did look like it cared about the pandemic and um, using the money that's in football to, to, to a good cause. And he spent ages on the phone to lots of other Premier League captains and, and made sure they were united on the issues that mattered. 
Uh, so there's a combination of being a jolly decent guy with good politics, a good heart and lifting the trophy for Liverpool and continuing to be influential and one of the few players who hasn't shown any form of fatigue. I've gone for Jordan Henderson as well. Um, oh, basically. oh, no, it's a clean Sorry, scene. Tom. Just based on, uh, on consistency. So it's now up to you, Tom, to, to fight the corner of anyone else. Well, as I've said, I can't pick anything to do with Liverpool. But I, I, and I also just, you know, again, being a man of the people, Jordan Henderson was not selected by any of the listeners who got in touch with their nominations. Uh, ben went for Jack Grealish. Chris went for Danny Ings. Justin went for Emmy Martinez. Alex went for Saka at Arsenal. Uh, James went for Son Hyung min uh, And mine is, I mean, you're going to laugh at this because it's completely off the wall, but in a, in a year of needing to kind of just keep going, and keep your head down. Just keep doing what what you can, and doing what you love. I'm going to pick Newport's Kevin Ellison, who is a journeyman uh, striker and midfielder who'll be familiar to lots of football uh, league fans. He pretty might have even played for your team. And if he hasn't played for your team, and you've been to grounds, you will have definitely gone to a ground and shouted abuse at him. And chances are he will have cupped, cupped his ears and laughed back at you. Uh, he's a brilliant football league journeyman player and he moved from Morecambe where he'd been for a good few years to Newport. He's only scored one goal in 2020. So this is a tough argument for me to win. For, <laughs> sure <is>. for, <laughs> for, for him to beat Jordan Henderson. But it was a 90th minute winner against Port Vale in November. So, you know, that's pretty good. Uh, he's going to be 42 in February and I can only hope that his career continues long enough for fans to return because he is just a, such a great character for fans. He played for Lincoln for a bit, but he also then went and joined a lot of our rival teams. And every time, away games, fans give him abuse, but in a very light-hearted, funny way. And he laps it up, makes sure he comes over and waves afterwards, comes and chats to some of the fans. He's just a great football league character. And he's, the fact that he's still going in this year, in 2020, is the ambassador we all need, not just in football, in life. Just keep going, keep keep laughing, keep laughing at yourself. Be Kevin Ellison. And that is why he's better than Jordan Henderson for players. <laughs> end, end, cut, done. Tom, drop moment. Tom's answer is the equivalent of the tomb of the unknown soldier. You're basically saying everybody is player of the season. Absolutely. He is, he is the embodiment. He is the embodiment of all the people that have done, you know, kept, kept plugging away in this absolutely crap year. Kevin Ellison. And just, just keep going, Kevin, until the fans come back so people can shout, you know, who's the bald tosser up front. Kevin Ellison first, Jordan Henderson second. Glad that we got that sorted. Excellent. <laughs> Those are our uh, end of 2020 awards. Um some some honours there, let's be honest. Some great names and characters. Um, it's time for a bit of fun on this is what's turned into a bumper edition of the game podcast. Um, we've got two games for you. In a moment, Bill Edgar's bodacious quiz of the year in 2020. Um, he has sent us through, of course, you remember all of his fantastic articles from the Times. He sent us through some questions we'll get to next with all of his facts, figures and statistics. Um, but first, it's Alison Rudd's football watchword. Alison, you're going to have to explain to everyone what exactly this involves? Well, hot on the heels of me inventing football scrabble for people who were bored in lockdown, I've invented football word watch, which is a spin on the word watch column, which appears every day in the Times. And it gives you three peculiar words. It offers you three definitions and you have to guess which one is correct. You'll have A, B or C. You're not allowed 
the same answer. So it's about, there's a bit of jeopardy in this. So when I finish definition C, then you shout out A, B or C. You probably all want the same one sometimes. And it's, it's about speed of thought as well. And then we'll work out who, who it's only fun. It's only fun. No, Go no. Ahead. I've told you, I'm not about entertainment. I'm about winning. It's about winning. <laughs> Word number one. Tifo, A, ice cream served at Fiorentina matches. B, ultras jumping and chanting. C, when Catanaccio fails. B, A. I've got C then, when Catanaccio fails. I'll give the answers at the end. I'll give the answers at the end. Word number two. Erotu Omari. Erotu Omari. Is it A, Norwegian for a streaker? B, Swedish for a waterlogged pitch? Or C, Finnish for the referee? B. A. B. No, you have to have C. Word three. <laughs> Fart look. Fart look. A. A manager who bigs up his team with scant evidence. B. Pre-match, slow, then fast, then slow running, sometimes accompanied with farting. C. Fenerbahce fans insult to Galatasaray supporters. B. C. B. Mm, someone has to have A. Whoever spoke last. I'll, I'll take so, A because I've got a. I've gone A in all the other ones. I was just. I basically have taken my nana's approach to any of these things and picked the funny answer. But anyway. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. I've got A for every single one, so fingers crossed. Okay. I've got C, B, C. Uh, and B, C, B. I'm really interested to know what the answers are. Answers are TIFO is the ultras jumping and chanting. Uh, you, so may have seen, you may have seen flags. Do you not, do you not, at Serie A games, you get TIFO on the odd You know flag? what? I, I, I yeah, genuinely, yeah. For, that, for, those, for those of us that play FIFA, um, you can earn TIFOs of various um, guises. Oh, I've currently... I've currently, the thing is, I've currently got what it is, is it's like a giant picture of Maradona hanging at one end of my stadium, a bit like the the, the images that fall down at, at the home of Borussia Dortmund, those massive pictures. So I thought that was going to be one of the answers. So mm. I didn't really, when I was, when I paused, I was like, oh, it must be the ultras, which is why I said be late, because I transferred what I thought it meant into that. But um start of this mad year, um, I was at the Milan Derby and actually probably... I hope I wasn't a super spreader, but anyway, it was just before it was kicked off. <laughs> so, um, and they did a huge display there, both both ends, the, the curvas, or whatever you call them, um, massive displays before the game. Amazing. Alison, like a true a true pro quiz host, do you have the actual name of the of the ice cream served at Fiorentina games? Because that's the only thing. <laughs> they don't that's... serve it. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. broken! Oh, I'm absolutely gutted at that. What was it? Erotu Amari. Tell us more. Okay, that is. Now, do you remember your answers? Yes. Yes. Streaker. Streaker. Frank, did you say C? Yeah. You see, if you know me, you know the answer, which is going to be Finnish for the referee, because I'm a bit of a Finnish. I I thought I was too obvious. (laughs) I got that by default as well. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Gregor, two out of two. Devoed. Fartlek, do you remember what you went for there? B. I had C. I have to say, I've done this. You've got three out of three, Greg. Oh, I've, d- I've done. Th- I did that run many a time in pre-season, so sorry. Uh, <laughs> three out of three. That's Great. absolutely ridiculous. Excellent. Is it about entertainment oh, now, Tom? Oh, <laughs> Running slow, then fast, then slow. No, I'm gutted. I'm gutted. 
proved what I always knew that my nan's theory about picking the funny name just didn't it didn't really work. But never mind. At least I gave it a go. Alison, thank you very much for for bringing those uh, tidbits, those facts to the um, to the podcast. We've got more on the way. Bill Edgar's bodacious quiz of the year. Uh, Bill Edgar, you'll remember from all of his fantastic, so unique to the world of sports journalism articles in the Times. Um, uh, just eking out those details, those facts that we might not have realised. So Bill has sent us seven questions we will answer um, next. But I want to thank Bill in advance of his questions uh, for taking the time to send them in. So here's Bill Edgar with question one. I'll start with an either or question. 2020 is only the second year in which league matches have been played in June. When was the other year? Was it 1947 or 1987? We're going to do this together rather than competing against one another. So it's more of a panel show from here on out. Um, typical question, Tom, you got an answer? Well, it made me think 47 to do with, the, you know, something weird must have happened that made them play. I've no idea. Well, to, do with, to do with the war, presumably. I'm sure there was one year it was a big freeze. Yeah, they didn't that have a little bit of That was 1962, okay. 63 was the big freeze. Okay. Bloody so hell, great, great, great weather knowledge, Alison. I'm going to have you as a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I just took that. 1987. I can't think of anything significant at all. It's not even a. It's not even a World Cup year or a. Nothing bad happened in '87 that would have meant they paused it for a few weeks. Was there? Was there? Was there a? Uh, didn't have to do with Falklands, did it? <laughs> let's go with 47 yeah yeah all right as a group we are deciding bill it's 1947 and the answer is 1947 in that season which was the first league campaign after the second world war a large number of weather related postponements meant that 19 matches were played in june one out of one. Get <laughs> Thanks, in. Bill. It was to do with the war, obviously, um, and, and weather-related as well. So we, we pretty much got both reasons and, and the right year. So delighted with that. Let's move on to question two. <laughs> in 2020, which player scored a hat-trick for two different English clubs in European competition? Bloody hell, that's hard. Hat-tricks in European competition? Oh, it was Jota. He, play, he did it for Wolves, he did it for Liverpool. Ah, Liverpool fan. Right, we're going for Diogo Jota of Liverpool. The answer is Diogo Jota. Uh, In February, he scored three for Wolves against Espanyol in the Europa League. And then, having moved to Liverpool in September, he scored a hat-trick for them against Atalanta in the Champions League in November. Brilliant. Two out of two so far. Uh, we're on a roll. Uh, I think teamwork makes the dream work, guys. We're at sensation. I mean, you say teamwork, I feel like there's one clear leader here. Uh, <laughs> we, we've, we've got our Jordan Henderson and, you know, um, you know very much Quiz playing. Queen, Alison Rudd. Um, new nickname for you. Um, let's move on to question three. Let's see if Alison can just get them all on her own, in fact. Here's three. <laughs> on October 18th of this year, what happened to Kaylee Green of the Brighton and Hove Albion women's team, which had also happened to Barry Ferguson when he was playing for Blackburn Rovers on August the 21st, 2004? I'm getting the idea that it's not tour and ACL. Or, <laughs> <laughs> it must be. It must. It must be quite a nice answer, whatever it is. Um, it's or, not. It's or not unusual. something to do with getting sent off. Did Barry Ferguson get sent off? 
like two yellow cards in about 10 seconds or something daft but then his reputation for being sent off no i I was was thinking i was thinking it might have been a mistaken identity or Uh, sending off off within a minute i would go and send off within a minute yeah i like that something about yeah don't shake your head, Gregor. Come on. Solutions, not problems, man. What's the matter with you? Team, are we ready? Are we okay to go for sent off within one minute? Or 30 seconds. Let's go for yeah, it. Sent oh, off in a seconds. very short space of time from entering the pitch. We are going to go for sent for off within 30 seconds. The answer is that they were both shown the yellow card twice in one match, but the referee forgot to send them off in each case. I, that's a half, isn't it? <laughs> no, I, I don't think I, we basically said that they both got sent off, and in fact, they both didn't get sent off. So, in many ways, we got it totally wrong, Tom. So, I think that would be a bit harsh. Oh, um, I mean, come on, I had the card thing right, give like you know, small victories and all that. Yeah, I'm gonna say that that, that isn't correct. Let's move on. Um, question four. A meeting of Preston North End and Derby County this year was the first ever league fixture played in the month of July. But what other landmark did the match produce? What? Oh, I was about to ask a question back to Bill, who's pre-recorded. I think it was Preston's, <laughs> Preston's thousand football league game or something. It's something like that. Press, yeah, Bill. Oh, God. It could be more. It's, it, was, it can't it, be a thousand. They've played the most games of any team, any club in the country, any, most football league games. It's questions like this that make me look really bad as an editor because I can remember editing Bill's piece that actually talked about this exact stuff. <laughs> it was a landmark, was it? And it was a landmark game, Preston, the most league fixtures. 10,000? Yeah. I mean, think about it. How many, when did the Football League start? Bloody yeah, loads. 18, 1880s, wasn't it? 10,000. I think 5,000. You think 5,000? It could be. If you think about how many games are a season over that many years. I'm happy to go with that, Gregor. 10,000 sounds right, doesn't it? I think it's, I don't think it's, I just remember looking at, I'm trying to think of me editing it and I think the number started with a one. God, I'm really hanging myself out. Let's be real, 10,000 is a lot. (laughs) Even though I said it, it is a lot. Because I just wrote down here, 40 games a season for 10 years. And that's, you know, 400 games in a decade. So obviously 150 years, we're not near 10,000. Join us on we're Monday at, for at, more maths tuition from Hugh Wozencraft. If your no, kids we're, are we're, we're about seven, we're about seven thousand, and they must have played more than forty games a year for a lot of that time. Plus the wars, plus there may have been smaller leagues. Yeah, that's true. I think it's fine. so. You say I'm going to go with Gregor because he's done the journeyman column, so yeah. he, he knows it best. After some deliberation, maybe none of these things. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Five players were sent off before yeah. half time, probably the answer. We're like arguing over the numbers. Um, but we're going to go for 5,000th game for Preston. Well, the answer is that Preston became the first club to play 5,000 league games when they played that match against Derby. <laughs> Unbelievable. Gregor, what a shout. What a shout. That's uh, I'm, I'm putting that in my quiz of the year, to be honest. I've got to do one on Zoom later on. That's a great question. Um, what are we up to? Question five. Which player appeared in four 3-3 three, three draws in the space of 22 days this autumn? Two were in the Premier League, one in a Nations League tie, and one in an international friendly. Four three-all draws? Second rice, I'd say. What three-all draws? England have a three-all draw in the Nations League? 
or a friendly? Well, I'm thinking it was going to be a West Ham player because they were in a 3-3 with Chelsea. So why that made me think of Declan Rice, I don't know, because there were lots of other players playing in that West Ham 3-3 with Chelsea. So we've got to deduce from who was playing in the 3-3 or it could be the 3-3 with West Brom. Three all draws. Likely to be a West Chelsea player? Two three threes? Yeah. Chelsea. Uh, so it's not, it can't be a Chelsea English player. Did Germany, Germany had a three all draw, didn't they? Timo Werner. Is it Werner or Havertz? What, 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 are, what, what are the other matches we need? We need them to play in a league game and what else? Two Premier League games, a Nations League game and a friendly. There's going to be a lot of listeners out there now, Chelsea fans going, it's this guy, it's this guy. If only I could hear you. Italy, Jorginho. Italy aren't involved in a lot of three all draws, are they? That's me being very stereotypical there, but... I can't think, unless it's like Brazil. No, in fact, Thiago Silva wasn't at the, wasn't playing then, was he? Werner was playing a lot, wasn't he? Should we go with Werner? Yeah, Werner's played most of the games until recently. Bill, we're going for Chelsea's and Germany's Timo Werner. It was Kai Havertz. He played in Chelsea's three all draws against West Bromwich Albion and Southampton and also in Germany's 3-3 draws against Turkey and Switzerland. Oh, no. Close, guys, close. We were almost there, exactly. Uh, Question six. Which three present Manchester City defenders, who have all made at least eight starts this season, were born within a day of each other? Two of them on May the 27th, 1994, and the other one the very next day. Oh, don't Carl Walker and John Stones have the same birthday? That uh, rings a bell for some reason, but... Yeah, 1994, yep. Xiao Cancelo is roughly the same age, is he? 25 Cancelo. Who else uh, Ruben Diaz is younger, isn't he? He's 23, yeah. Aki. Okay. Walker, they were, they're like 27-ish, aren't they? 28? Walker 26, and Stones. yeah. Right, well, one of them's got to be Ruben Diaz. Laporte, how old is he? 26? Older, I think. Yeah, he's about 28. Although, to be fair, I said it was Werner in the previous one. Who's 26 out of their defenders? One must be Ake by default. Maybe Stones and... Am I... Am I, I thought I'm they were a bit older. About that. Stones, yeah. Walker's certainly older. Maybe it must be Cancelo. Maybe it... I, I, 26 maybe. years old, I mean... To be fair, I, I mean, I've just said it's definitely not Laporte, so that means it definitely is Laporte based on my, you know, my <laughs> current involvement in this be, quiz. Stones, Laporte's probably about 26. Stones made eight appearances yet. He's Stones has been playing, playing loads. Yeah. I'm not even sure Laporte's made eight starts this season. Benjamin Mendy? I feel like the countdown <laughs> clock would be kick, ticking now, wouldn't it? Right. We're gonna, I'm going to go for, forget all of you, Stones, Laporte and Mendy. Not Cancelo. Not Cancelo. Okay. His leadership. I don't think Mendy's made eight starts this season. That's a good point. Cancelo. Chuck Cancelo on there. We're going to go for Stones, Laporte and Cancelo. <laughs> <laughs> Final answer. <laughs> the answer is Imeric Laporte and Joao Cancelo were born on May the 27th, 1994. And John Stones was born a day later. Way! <laughs> Proof. Right, one Proof. question left. We've, we've kept you long enough. One question left on Bill Edgar's bodacious quiz of the year. Which Premier League player became a sponsor of a League Two club in May and then later in the year his team were given a walkover in the Carabao Cup 
over that same League Two side after the latter had an outbreak of coronavirus. Harry Kane, old Harry, good lad. Do you, do you ever get an, a Harry Kane lookalike, Tom? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? What? He's a good-looking guy. What? What? I know my hairline's receding, but it's not that. <laughs> Let's on. end on that. I think we've got it. It's it's Harry Kane. The answer is Harry Kane of Tottenham. He sponsored Leighton Orient, a club for whom he played on loan in 2011. Are you still annoyed, Tom? You've ruined me New Year's now. That's, that's <laughs> absolutely stood up, two-footed, VAR, you'd be off for that. England legend, England legend. Uh, if you get like the little fade on the edges and the sort of the big comb back Elvis Presley type haircut as well, I, watched, I think you'd be a bit an image. At the start of the show before we started recording, and I was, <laughs> I was a bit like Antoine Griezmann. Can we go back to that, please? Can we? Yes, you, you look like all footballers with, with hair. Tom Clark, Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson, thank you for being with us on the podcast once again. And Happy New Year, of course. You can get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times and enjoy more of our award-winning journalism on all your devices. We'll be back very, very soon. This Monday, we'll be reacting to all the New Year's football and you'll be able to follow all the big stories, of course, uh, with The Times and The Sunday Times. You can get a subscription. Sign up today. You'll get yourself one month free. Just search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get yourself started. We will see you on Monday and Happy New Year. you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.